electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanier with David Faber and Kelly Evans. Kramer has the morning off. Stocks do look to close the week out. Pretty strong. The S&P needs about 17 points for a fresh record high. The Dow is enjoying its best August since 1986. Crude oil pretty steady as producers appear to have avoided the worst of Hurricane Laura, although nearly a million are without power. Our roadmap begins with shares of Dell rallying ahead of the uh, open. Remote working giving the PC maker a demand boost. CEO Michael Dell will join us live this hour. Plus, records watch the Dow Plus, aiming to... Aiming, yeah, I got a Carl the Dow aiming to erase 2020 right. losses and the S&P heading for the best August since 1986, Kelly. Wow, and Coca-Cola's restructuring strategy. Amid plans to streamline its drink portfolio, the company is setting voluntary job cuts for thousands of its workers. All right, David, it is Friday. And Kelly, uh, Friday, and you just uh, sort of think back to what this week has brought us, guys. Uh, All-time highs, obviously news and sports in the NBA, Hurricane Laura, the RNC, and we'll hear from what the president said last night, TikTok, Microsoft, Walmart, Oracle, you name it, David. But uh, large discussion this morning about how the thing that's going to probably stick with us for the weeks and quarters to come is going to be that historic Powell speech, and we'll have to decide whether this long end is bringing us noise or something more. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm glad Kelly's here because I'm sure she was home studying every word after it took place. Uh, As you know, not my area necessarily of expertise, but within the confines of the, well, actually within the confines of the broader market, Carl, in terms of the Fed and whether or not it really has been fueling this level of, some of us call it a speculation that we've seen that has sent so many of the certainly uh, large technology stocks to heights that we really could not have imagined even a few months ago. I think that's an important part of it. And the fact that, well, inflation not going to necessarily play a role as much in what the Fed is thinking about, at least, and that rates may stay even lower for longer, Kelly. You know, when I look back at this week, that move in Salesforce is the one that stands out to yes, me yes. as reflective of great numbers, no doubt about it. And certainly also reflective of the changes that have taken place in the U.S. economy in this very short amount of time and the digitization that has been accelerated for so many companies who, without it, would not have a business. But, man, adding 25 percent to your market value in one day on an earnings number, it was incredible. Incredible. And so here's the interesting question. It was also the day before the big Fed, you know, decision, the move, the the change in tone. So we had Salesforce up 26 percent. David, we had Workday. We had Adobe up 10 percent that day. Netflix up 12 percent. Facebook was up 6 percent, despite saying that Amazon was going to take half of its mobile advertising or Apple was going to take half of its mobile advertising business. 
exactly. So that's exactly why we put this question to the Fed presidents who we've spoken with on this channel over the past 24 hours. And I think it's, it's been the question to everybody. And the answer has been fairly consistent. We say, are you worried that these markets are acting a little frothy? Pretty much all of them acknowledge yeah, I mean, I forget exactly, Carl, remind me how Mester put it, but they said, yeah, valuations are high. No one wants to call it a bubble yet, but they're watching it. And the interesting thing we talked to Greg Ipp about yesterday, too, is that this is not a Fed that is telling you they're going to lean against it. David, they're basically saying, yeah, we see what's going on in you know electric vehicle prices. We saw that Chinese IPO yesterday. Like we're, We see it all. And our priority and our prerogative for the next several years is not going to be worrying about it. You know, it is going to be making sure that that unemployment rate for everybody comes down. Yeah. And Carl, of course, we've also seen it reflected in the bond market. We've hit it on a, f- on a few occasions, but I think it is worth remarking on yet again, just the prices that junk yields are at or yields in the junk market are at right now is extraordinary. Uh, And it goes back to this idea that where can you actually go to get any sort of a return? As we do take a look at the 10-year, which did manage to gallop ahead, at least uh, breaking out from that uh, below 7.7% yield, Carl. But uh, nonetheless, very few places one can look for for a genuine return in, uh, in any asset class. Yep, that's true. And maybe the two things we're talking about, guys, are sort of uh, dovetailing the impact of technology and the argument from the Fed this week that it's not going to be wages uh, that drives inflation from here on out. Kelly mentions Mester on Squawk this morning, and uh, she said the behavior of the market is, is essentially a vote by investors who believe the economy is headed for a certain place. Uh, but she was asked whether or not she thought the Fed was feeding a bubble. Here's what she said. I don't feel right now that we are engendering an asset bubble. I do feel that we're supporting the economy and we're doing what we can to make sure that financial markets continue to function and that credit continues to flow to both households and businesses. We're going to be looking at financial stability issues as we do monetary policy going forward. Yes, stock prices are elevated and you're right to point that out. Uh, so, David, we got a couple you know, conflicting signals. Uh, income and spending this morning, nice upside surprise. Uh, but you see Capital One cutting their card limits. They're not saying for how many people, but people are reporting, hey, my card limit got cut by a third. In the absence of jobless aid, maybe that's what some of these financials are going to have to start hedging against. Yeah. And Kelly, we talk about it all the time, the sort of tale of two markets, tale of two economies in many ways. Of course, the large technology companies just benefiting enormously from these changes that have been accelerated. Uh, but at the same time, well, we've still got, what, 30 million people? Uh, yeah. You know, we've got uh, concerns about people who are going to be evicted. We do not have any legislation out of Congress and the White House at this point that would indicate aid is on the way or another round of aid. And as we get closer and closer to beginning September, perhaps the the prospect for that even dims more. And it's hard to imagine the idea, Kelly, that we're not going to have uh, something coming along to help people who've lost their job, who continue not to find a job. Uh, help people pay their rent and on and on down the list. Yeah, I mean, and we'll talk about this again, I guess, in a minute about the skinny deal that may be coming. But first, to your point about what's going on in the economy, what Carl said about Capital One, it's not showing up everywhere yet. If you look at the credit card delinquency data from, I think, July is the latest. The figures actually ticked generally in a good direction. J.P. Morgan, that's what I was just looking for yesterday, put out their uh, spending tracker, which has been great. They're, they're basically using the, the JPM economists use the Chase card data 
to figure out what's going on with the economy in real time and consumer spending. And even after the cliff from those expiring jobless benefits, they're not finding a, a turn lower in spending overall. And again, we sort of saw that in some of the macro data that, you know, earlier today. So remains the big question, David, but I think it's why we haven't seen this urgency out of Washington. Of course, they're at an impasse. The market's not insisting for another big deal. Maybe the airline stocks have a lot of hopes uh, in particular pinned on this. We'll probably get something, you know, around the edges. But so far, the macro has actually held up surprisingly well. There we're showing the airline stocks, by the way, American up another uh, two, call it percent, Carl, today. Yeah, uh, of course, that was the other big story of the week. Uh, Some of the pilot furloughs that are going to be coming in the absence of further government aid, Kelly, uh, starting October 1, largest pilot furlough it would be, at least, for United uh, and, of course, American with a separate announcement. Then you got Coke today uh, cutting the number of uh, organizational units in half, offering voluntary separation to 4,000 workers in the U.S., Canada, Puerto Rico, which they said would limit the number of involuntary separations uh, down the road. Of course, Coke's a good example of a company, guys, that had its business basically shut by the virus. And it does sort of bring us to what the president said last night as he accepted the nomination uh, for the party, uh, talking about the vaccine and the hope that we would, in fact, get one before the end of the year. Here's what he said. We are delivering life-saving therapies and will produce a vaccine before the end of the year or maybe even sooner. We will defeat the virus, end the pandemic, and emerge stronger than ever before. And that ties right back, Kelly, to what Mester also said, and that is the virus, whether it's relating to household activity or business spending, the virus is still driving everything. Yeah, absolutely. So I found that J.P. Morgan note that I was just referencing. Uh, This is as of Wednesday. Again, looking through the weekly data, they say only subtle effects of the benefit expiration of unemployment uh, compensation, that $600 a week uh, that went away. This is only subtle effects so far in their high-frequency data. So, again, David, maybe people are are also now turning uh, to some hopes, like Carl said, on the vaccine front. Obviously, better news from Abbott and others this week. That's what was pushing the whole reopening trade. The financials yesterday were extremely strong. I mean, David, when's the last time the financials were the market leadership? It's rare, uh, and it has been rare given the uh, rate environment, not to mention, of course, some of the challenges that we're talking about in terms of uh, the ability of people to repay, although, as you point out, at this point, it does not appear to be uh, suffering that greatly. Uh, but, yeah, we haven't seen it very often, and we are still looking at a, a group of stocks that are down. Other than Morgan Stanley, which, of course, has benefited from the yet-to-close deal to acquire E-Trade, which has been on fire, of course, back to sort of what we've seen as this new cohort that's entered the market. We talk about the Robinhood traders, but E-Trade has benefited a great deal as well. They are opening uh, accounts at record numbers. And so Morgan Stanley stock is up almost 3%. Of course, they also do pursue a bit of a different business model, as we know, uh, than than the uh, traditional investment bank that might be Goldman Sachs, which is down 8%. But J.P. Morgan, the biggest of them all, has still lost 26% over the course of the year. But as you point out, uh, Kelly, uh, they rallied. I just don't know how long that continues. It's Their rallies the- have typically lasted about 12 hours. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, the bank investors have seen this false dawn before. It's probably the biggest question for the whole sector. Are they entering a decade of financial repression because the Fed's never going to raise rates again? Or are they going to be fine because, look, the 30 years already moving up. The Fed's going to get it right. They're going to have better growth prospects and so forth. 
Uh, anyway, the Dow today, this morning, looking to open about 144 points higher in about 20 minutes' time. We'll keep an eye on all of it. Up next, Michael Dell on his company's better-than-expected quarterly results on remote working trends, benefiting demand for his products. Look forward to speaking with him. Squawk on the Street. We'll be right back. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Shares of Dell getting a boost this morning ahead of the opening bell. Better than expected results and increase in demand for notebooks. The obvious story there. Joining us this morning is Dell Technologies founder and CEO, Michael Dell. Michael, it's always great to have you. Good morning. Welcome. Good morning, Carl. Great to be with you. Um, I mean, operating income 2x. Uh, you got certain product lines, order growth in the triple digits. You point out government, you point out schools. I mean, basically, anyone who's working from home or getting ready to send their kids to school certainly uh, can identify with some of the fundamentals that are driving the quarter, at least. That's right. I mean, our online consumer business was up 79%. So, you know, that was very nice to see. Our revenues grew 4% sequentially. But as you said, you know, earnings were up very strong. EPS was up 43% sequentially. We had... Uh, Double-digit growth in our VX rail, hyperconverge, and data protection products. We had uh, actually triple-digit growth in our flagship high-end storage product, the PowerMax. So really pleased with the way we've been able to uh, respond flexibly and and, uh, help our customers through this time. We had uh, super strong originations with Dell Financial Services That was up uh, 31%. We put in place a payment flexibility program that has been really well received. Our deferred revenues uh, were up 14%, driven by maintenance and subscription and SaaS services. Uh, Software as a service uh, at VMware and subscription was up 44%. So some very encouraging uh, results in a challenging and uncertain environment for sure. Yeah. And we'll talk to Patrick uh, later on this morning. You know, the argument, Michael, that, that this is all some kind of giant pull forward is, is losing a lot of credence. But what do you say to those who still believe that maybe we're borrowing against the future in terms of demand? Well, first of all, I think the whole work from home, learn from home is, is clearly not a pull forward. It's just a new requirement that has emerged uh, rather unexpectedly. And I think, you know, looking at the enterprise, there's actually been some delays as customers have been slow to get into data centers and deploy equipment. Uh, You know, that's led to an acceleration in some of the cloud migrations and certainly we're helping customers 
as they work through that. But, uh, you know, pretty encouraged with what I see in the, in the pipelines for the second half. And uh, I wouldn't really characterize the demand as, as, a, as a pull forward. Michael, it's David Faber. You know, I'd love to get you to reflect a, a little bit more on the current moment we find ourselves in, particularly as to whether or not it is something, as you seem to have indicated, we're going to be living with even after the pandemic passes. Uh, your COO on the call said of work, work is something you do, an outcome, not a place or a time. Is that something you agree with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we have for almost a decade now had this flexible uh, work environment where we've allowed people to work from home. And it, before the pandemic, you know, got up to about a quarter of our workforce, I would expect, uh, you know, even, you know, uh, past this, this pandemic, it could be 50% or more of our workforce. So we, we believe work is something you do. It's not a, it's not a place. Uh, certainly the, the office will change into a place for collaboration and hubs for training and learning. But look, I think we and all organizations have learned that you can actually be quite productive uh, working remotely. And uh, it turns out that that's also pretty good for, for our business. So, um, yeah, I, I, I also think that if you, if you reflect back on what is going to be different relative to the virus and the environment we're in uh, in three months or six months or nine months, I think we're, we're, in, we're in for a bit of a, of a long haul here. And so uh, we've all got to tap into our grit and resilience uh, to, to, to be prepared for that. And, uh, it, you know, this is not going to uh, resume exactly the way it was anytime soon. And also, I think uh, we've kind of got a glimpse of the future, right? And we've accelerated a lot of technology trends and digital products and services and, you know, the secure remote workforce. Yeah. On that, on that note, uh, or on that subject, Michael, uh, I think it was your competitor uh, or CEO of HP, Antonio Neri, who said he could see as many as 50% of people working remotely. I think you just mentioned that statistic potentially for Dell. Is that really something you see as, as a possible future in this country, that we could have half of any workforce at any one time not being in an office? I think it'll vary, uh, you know, David, obviously by organization and what we see is kind of a hybrid structure where people would, and, and we already had this, you know, for, for years, uh, where people would come in to the office, uh, not all the time, and work from home with hoteling and hot desking and those kinds of things. And yeah, I think we see more of that as we've all learned that this actually works very well. But again, as I said, it, it will be. Uh, up to an individual organization and, you know, to, to figure out what is best for them. But yeah, we see it working quite well. Uh, we've gone through a pretty thorough analysis of which jobs are more productive, which jobs are less productive, and how do we create the tools and the environment for people to succeed in a remote distributed workforce and do it securely? Mr. Dell, it's Kelly here. And we've heard a lot of stories about shortages of computers and computer equipment. Um, what are you guys having the most trouble with in terms of the supply chain? Where do you see the biggest shortages? Um, what is that doing for price? And how do you expect it all to be 
kind of worked out and get back to quote unquote normal? At what point might we see that happen? Well, you know, the, the education demand uh, has been very strong, and that's been the place where there's been some shortages in, you know, what we would characterize as kind of the low end. No, And uh, we're ramping up to, to meet the demand. We did have more backlog than we would have liked, uh, you know, both in the first quarter and the second quarter. Uh, you know, I suspect there will still be some supply challenges. I mean, just think about it. Uh, you've got you know, 13,500 school districts in the United States, all coming up with a slightly different strategy for how to deal with this, but lots of kids uh, needing and wanting to be able to learn from home. And that's just the United States, right? Uh, multiply that by the, the entire world. And there is a lot of learn from home and work from home demand, and we're still ramping up to, to deal with it. But um, I'd say, you know, lead, lead times are in pretty good shape with, with, some, with some exceptions. Michael, your stock got quite a move uh, when you guys acknowledged and said that you were at least looking at the possibility of separating your roughly 80 percent stake in VMware. Um, I know it's got to be at least a year away given tax considerations, but are you still sort of focused on that? Is this, going, is this process that involves a lot going to continue or pick up perhaps as this year comes to a close? Yeah, absolutely, David. Look, I mean, we believe that the spinoff could benefit both the Dell Technologies and the VMware shareholders. And, you know, uh, simplifying the capital structure, creating additional strategic flexibility, while we maintain the strong strategic partnership that we've had uh, for many years and has been uh, quite beneficial. So uh, we're quite focused on this. And, you know, it's part of our uh, continued focus on long-term value creation for all of our shareholders. Well, Michael, um, uh, it's great talking the quarter with you. I uh, look forward to maybe a discussion in the coming uh, weeks and months about some of these broader themes in technology, which, as you pointed out, uh, we've just gotten a glimpse of uh, this year. Thanks so much. Good to see you again. Awesome. Great to be with you all. There was a y'all. Reminding us, of course, the man helped create Austin, Texas, what that is today. Coming up, lots of buzz surrounding TikTok. We're going to bring you the latest. Stay with us. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Welcome back. A final look at futures as we count down to the opening bell. The Dow's implied to open higher 140 points. The S&P by 14. The S&P, by the way, on track for its best August since 1986. It's up 6%. It's up five straight months. We'll see how the rally continues in just a bit. 
Stocks are going to aim for a fresh all-time high today. S&P needs about 17 points. Uh, futures indicate it's going to get somewhat uh, in the ballpark. We'll see what happens when we do get the opening bell. Retail is the name of the game once again this morning, guys. Uh, gaps uh, down just a touch pre-market, uh, smaller than expected loss. Revenue ahead. Uh, interesting contribution from masks as they sell about $130 million worth in the quarter. Yeah. Ulta is going to be the real winner, though, Kelly, as 73 cents beats a dime expe expected. Uh, as that business, after a couple tough quarters, is appearing to bounce back. Ulta's back, which is a fascinating story on its own, Carl. But this Gap story, they made $130 million selling face masks. And we're not talking about to the general public. They sold them to the city of New York, the state of California, to Kaiser Permanente. They are, though, doing retail masks. The CEO said, we're the number one result if you search face mask style guide on Google. David, my question is... I mean, is that a sustainable business practice for them to get in? They say it's an example of how they want to operate as a company, as a culture. But this is kind of a unique one-off type of thing. Uh, yeah, selling masks, one would think, and certainly one would hope. Now, that said, I think mask wearing is probably going to be with us far af long after. I mean, look at a, a lot of Asian countries, as you know, Kelly, yep. where it's sort of something that is part of society. And it may become at least part of the way people behave here to some extent. But you're right. I don't think you can count on mask sales being a key component of Gap's earnings in the, in the, uh, in the future, Paul. Yep. Guys, there's the opening bell, uh, final trading session of the week. You know, guys, when we come in on Monday, uh, Apple will split, uh, Tesla will split. We, this, today is the last day that we will have Pfizer, Exxon, Raytheon, and the Dow. Is On Monday, we're going to wake up to Honeywell, Amgen, and Salesforce. It says a lot about the price changes that we're going to see in the Dow and the performance of the markets that we've seen. I, I mentioned that the S&P is up 6% this month, best August since, I think, 1986. Apple's up 18%. And, David, Apple is up like 70% this year. This is not even necessarily a company that benefits from the pandemic. You know, this isn't Amazon. This isn't Salesforce. This isn't Dell. This isn't work from home. If anything, their iPhone sales were hurt by people not buying uh, as many because of the shutdowns as they might have in the delay of the iPhone 12 launch. So it's just an incredible. I mean, talk about sustainable. I mean, I don't know. What do you do with Apple from here? It's just an unbelievable run. Yeah, well, we talk about it a lot in the morning, of course, and we talk about it a lot with Jim Cramer, who... Uh, I think is, it's fair to say has been, become a bit more cautious on the name, though still positive, uh, in part because of the multiple, uh, which has moved up appreciably, as you point out, Kelly, yeah. uh, as have all of the price targets from so many of the analysts, at least most of the analysts who follow the company, talking about, as you say, the prospect of 5G now is potentially a tailwind for the company when, in fact, uh, those phones do get out there and what may be significant demand for them. But it has been... It has been nothing short of uh, amazing to watch. Uh, that company crossed the $2 trillion barrier and now $2,151,000,000,000 in market value. Wow. The other day I mentioned it, and it's always worth mentioning, Berkshire, $126 billion worth of Apple, maybe even more now, roughly around that with its 250 million shares, I think it was, or something like that. Uh, and then I also wondered, man, Carl Icahn, uh, you know, if you're out there, Carl, and you, do, you did great, but... You could have just held on to this thing. And, man. <laughs> Remember what, what do you say? You know, if they make these changes, Apple could go to two hundred dollars. It was. Yeah, I think was that it was a two hundred. I mean, I'd have to go back and look when like he was that. Yeah. years ago already that he was having those fights with with Tim Cook or so to speak. And we were talking. Remember, oh, they're going to have dinner together. Where did they have dinner together? And, and then obviously he did quite well and left the stock as he did Netflix. But it goes to the value of a long term holding to a certain extent, uh, Carl, as we continue to watch Apple surge higher. Uh, and we'll see. I mean, I don't know if uh, if all the stock split 
move is in it or whether or not it will pick up even more adherence, perhaps when it is a lower priced stock. And again, just to point it out, it means nothing to the overall value of the company. (laughs) Just to be clear, right? Um, Yeah. And and we'll pay attention to how uh, the rhetoric uh, back and forth between China continues to uh, affect the name, if at all, which, of course, it hasn't lately. But I will point out a spokesman for the uh, Chinese foreign ministry said overnight, if WeChat is banned, then there will be no reason uh, why the Chinese shall keep iPhone and Apple products. So, I mean, for now, it's just words, Kelly, and, and empty words if you look at the market cap. No, but I wondered all along if, you know, who are the American companies that have the biggest presence in China, kind of most visible presence in China? Probably Apple and Starbucks. And both, I mean, Starbucks calls China its second home market. So they continue to have a good relationship there. They sort of feel like their futures are tied together because the Chinese be shooting themselves in the foot if they hurt Starbucks. They employ thousands and thousands of Chinese workers. That's probably a question for another time. Guys, I was looking at shares of Walmart this morning up another 1.7%. But David, I mean, what a twist and turn this TikTok thing has taken over the last couple of days from us wondering whether it would be Microsoft or Oracle to suddenly rethinking Walmart's strategy here and whether this makes sense uh, ownership-wise for them to say, okay, maybe they can kind of just leave TikTok operating the way that it is and, and get investors thinking of them more like Amazon. But wow, big two-day pop in Walmart as investors salivate over this possibility. Yeah, it's really interesting. It it was somewhat unexpected that, I mean, certainly you, you can imagine that Microsoft does not need a partner uh, wherever the price would end up. Uh, and so they would only take on a partner as in Walmart if they thought it would be in some way additive to the overall business once they own it. And again, just to refresh on TikTok, uh, you know, Kevin Mayer obviously has already exited the company. He was in there for about three months. Uh, we did uh, this morning on Squawk Box, uh, Julia Borston brought us the, uh, the acting CEO of the company as well. We'll have some, uh, we'll have some sound from her in a moment uh, as well. But, um, you know, they are entering this weekend with the idea, of, from what I have uh, heard from people familiar with the situation, that they will uh, go exclusive with one of what appears to be the two main parties. There's always been sort of speculation that perhaps there's somebody else out there, not Twitter, which did have some interest for a while. But you've got Oracle aligned with some financial partners, some of which are actually owners of ByteDance. You've got Microsoft, which apparently we know because Walmart put a statement out, which was also odd for Walmart. <laughs> um, maybe they just want us to think about it in a different way, but uh, is partnered with, uh, with Walmart. Uh, and we'll see. But it is going to be a significant challenge for whatever company does decide to step up in terms of the code, in terms of uh, the time that is going to be needed to uh, take that huge code base, um, you know, you take a snapshot of the code, you do get the updates for a year from the engineers in China, but then you're on your own. You've got to build an engineering base, and there's only a couple of companies that are really in a position to do that to begin with. So you have to build an engineering base. And then, Carl, you are just a U.S. company. Uh, you know, you don't, you aren't able to amortize that engineering base over a global platform. So even though TikTok is extraordinarily successful, at least at this point, in terms of DAUs and MAUs and time spent. Um, You're not going to have a global audience for it when you're the U.S. owner of it. Yeah. Uh, As for the fundamental business, Jim, Jim, David, uh, (laughs) Walmart's doing pretty well, given that General Mills and uh, ConAgra and some of these consumer product brands are lower today. Uh, Maybe on this journal story, Kelly, uh, that grocery, uh, grocery stores are seeing 
uh, consumers cut back in the face of uncertainty regarding enhanced benefits yeah. uh, being extended. Although um, I did see this study out of Upwork that Americans, by not driving to work anymore, are saving $758 million a day, uh, $91 billion in aggregate simply by not having to commute. So there's, there's cross-currents in there as well. Yeah, and it's, you know, I mentioned earlier that J.P. Morgan card spending data has held up despite the benefits expiring. But it's not to say that, I mean, that's, that's right now. We, you know, we got to watch the grocery stores. We got to watch all of the, these data points to see where it's weakening and for whom. And so if the grocery stores are saying it's getting a little softer out there, you got to stand up and pay attention. So, yeah, they're saving a little, maybe not driving to work. Uh, I think people wish they were, you know, in some cases driving to school this year. I want to quickly mention bond yields as well, uh, which have moved big uh, this month. We've been talking about the stock moves, but for the first time in a while, we're not seeing gains in both the stock market and on the longer term end of the bond market. So there's the 30 year. It's just below 1.5 percent. But we started the month under 1.2 percent. The 10 year this morning is 0.72. And again, it has climbed up a a little bit. So the, the question is, how much of this is the market saying, you know what? We listen to the Fed. We understand what they're saying. They're going to kind of stay on the back foot and make sure that consumer spending's fine, make sure the unemployment rate comes down. Uh, but, David, if you're an investor, for example, the TLT, this hat tip to Larry McDonald, uh, you would have gone from 172 to 160 this month. So you can lose money in the bond market. Without a doubt. Yes, as prices uh, come down, of course, and yields go up, to your point. That has not been the case, though, more or less for the last, what, 30 years, right? I mean, Exactly. I guess, uh, and there are those who think we're going to get even lower. I mean, Kelly, there's still talk about negative, the possibility of negative rates, although, I, I, you know, I, uh, Powell did seem to indicate yesterday that that's something he wants to stay clear away from and would be certainly a a very negative thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm just glad we're not hearing about it every day right now. It's probably the most hopeful sign. So again, these moves are, for the most part, a hopeful thing. You want the 30-year to go up a little. You want the 10-year to go up because people think there will be better growth prospects and so forth. And let's just circle back, Carl, to Ulta and what they did say this morning because we have seen a couple of these retail names come out and pop and suggest that they're figuring out some way to kind of weather the pandemic, especially if we know we're going to be stuck in this hybrid, you know, retail operating environment for quite some time. The shares are still about 10%. Yeah, sort of flying in the face of uh, some of the quarters that we got out of uh, Estee Lauder, for example. If Jim were here, he'd go off on his thesis about uh, beauty being challenged and skincare having to make up for uh, lipstick and makeup that you don't wear because you're wearing a mask. Uh, but, uh, but you're Ulta on Zoom. Has, uh, some ha- <laughs> it's on Zoom. There's no mask on Zoom. It doesn't count. Yeah. People are all figuring out how to do the TV thing. They go, oh, I get it. Now I see you guys have the big lights. You know, it's really bright out here that you got to you got to get the right effect. The makeup, David, the whole thing. I wouldn't know necessarily. Thankfully, I'm not zooming too much, but I guess I am on television. So uh, I guess that that counts a little bit. right, Kelly? Yeah. (laughs) Although you do speak to people, many of whom I speak to who are on Zoom for 12 to 14 hours every day. I would think that gets very exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You can put I guess you can put a different image up if you need to. If that's um, all you can do to refresh it. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but your point on Alta uh, is an interesting one. We're watching the stock rebound here. It is, of course, still down for the year. Uh, but it, there was one point at which they had all of their stores closed, as you know, uh, at least temporarily. Um, uh, and they had outside pickup for a while. But it's still the question of whether you can go to a counter and try and try and lipstick and makeup. Uh, they're trying to figure it out, and obviously they managed to uh, they managed to have a, a strong quarter in the face of that. Sales still down dr- dramatically, I guess is what you'd have to say, 26.3 percent, Carl. But 
That's, uh, you know, they'll take it. They'll take it. Yeah, shares still down about 3% year to date. So they're trying to turn positive. So are the broader markets as we head to break. Take a look at the S&P's best performers so far this week. Salesforce, like we were talking about earlier, up 32% after its strong results and guidance. It's among three companies also being added to the Dow on Monday. Gap and Ulta up there as well now for the week. We're back in two. As Kelly said, we're watching bond yields today in the wake of Powell, Abe stepping down and some fresh eco data. Let's get to Rick Santelli. Hey, Rick. Hi, Carl. Indeed. You know, if we look at a two day of tens, it pretty much says it all. We zoomed up to around the 75, 76 level, three quarters, one percent in English. And we have given up some ground. The yield curve, though, has remained uh, much steeper than it has been, uh, getting very close to 60 basis points, which in part has fueled some of the banking sector. Uh, You know, the financials seem to be leading the way. Maybe the aftermath of this is just a steeper curve, maybe less front running with regard to Fed policy. That's what many are talking about, although I don't see it. You know, they basically enacted as if this was codified for maybe over a year or a year plus in terms of 2% not being a huge trigger. Open this chart up for 10s to March, and you can clearly see we've had three spikes. The one to 75, the one to 90 in June, and then the one that was up at 120 in March. The fact that we can't get to the other two, 30-year bonds are the same, really kind of settles back this notion that rates are going to run up in any aggressive fashion, at least for the moment. The dollar index really taking it hard in the last couple of days. Also a bit of a U-turn, but not to the same size as the interest rate complex. Look at a two-day of the dollar doing much better yesterday, giving up a lot of ground today, although it's had a little bit of bounce. Open the chart up uh, to basically 28 months ago, April of 2018, and you can see that the dollar index once again is flirting with those levels that we saw uh, about a week ago uh, in the uh, 818, August 18 where the dollar index had its lowest close in about 28 weeks. And i also like to point out that even with the Japanese government bonds uh, on the 10-year sector up to almost 0.06, that alone still represents some of the highest yields we've seen in quite a while because they really have stomped out all volatility. Their government bond market trades by appointment only. And here we go. Our August read on Chicago PMI expected at 52.6, comes in a smidge light at 51.2. 51.2. And in the rearview mirror is 51.9. So there's where you're comping to. But I will say that after the low was established three months ago at 32.3 in May, th- these would have been levels that seem to be unheard of. And all of a sudden we're back over 50, which we hadn't been since June of last year as we deteriorated long before the coronavirus effects on the economy. David Faber, back to you. Thank you, Rick. While congressional coronavirus relief talks were made at a standstill, the state of the housing market, like so many other sectors of the economy, continues to be quite uncertain. Joining us now to discuss the retail and urban housing market is Walker and Dunlop CEO Willie Walker. Nice to have you, Mr. Walker. Let me start off with this prospect of eviction that we hear a great deal about, or at least have heard something about, particularly in light of the uh, the lack of or the reduction in unemployment benefits. Is it real? Are you worried about it? Are you seeing signs of it in your own portfolio? We are not, David. What we've seen so far is rent rolls holding up extremely well across the country. And there has been plenty of talk about this eviction tsunami. But landlords across the country aren't looking to evict people right now. They're looking to work with their tenants to keep them in their homes. Um, You saw yesterday, David, that the Federal Housing Finance Administration extended the for forbearance and uh, eviction moratorium in single-family homes. They did not do it on multifamily homes. 
And I think one of the main reasons they didn't is because it has not been an issue across the country so far. Uh, if we don't get congressional action, a bill out of out of Congress and signed by the White House in terms of new relief, are you concerned? I am. I mean, I heard you speaking earlier with Carl about the fact that it seems like leaders in Congress are looking at the stock market and things are good and they don't have any real pressure. I would actually say that I think they are very concerned about the numbers. I think the issue with it is that the distance between the Republicans and the Democrats is so wide right now. Um, but I can't imagine either side wants to try and campaign in November off of what we wanted to hold at a trillion five and the Democrats wanted to be at three five. And so we couldn't find some mutual ground in between. I think both of them would like to get some type of deal done. And there's no doubt with 14 million Americans filing for unemployment benefits this past week that there is a real need for it. Um, we've talked about so many of the different trends that have either been accelerated or created as a result of the pandemic. One seems to be this move from urban centers to suburban areas. Certainly we get anecdotal evidence of it. We see it in some of the housing numbers. Do you expect that is going to continue or is that something that we'll look back on as sort of a one time phenomenon? Uh, look, it really does depend on how long the pandemic lasts for. I would also say that you have to take into account the trillions of dollars of stimulus that were put into the economy with the CARES Act. Uh, but people are focused on home. If you think about the great financial crisis, during that period of time, people were looking for jobs. They would meet with friends at a Starbucks. They would still go out at night. They wanted to pay for their cell phone. I think housing as a focus of your money has moved up in the pecking order, if you will. And so people are buying food, they're buying medicine, and they're focused on housing. And whether that's single family or whether that's multifamily, they are investing in their homes right now. And you've clearly seen that in Home Depot earnings. Um, I think the other piece to it as far as how sustainable this growth in single family both starts as well as sales is that most people out there are refinancing their single family mortgage right now. And so they're going to lock in historically low interest rates. And they're also investing in their homes right now. And so my question is, all of these single family home builders building new inventory, is there going to be a market for that in a year or two? when it delivers, if everyone has gone and refied their home today and has also been investing at such a rapid pace. Yeah. Uh, I want to get back to sort of the creditworthiness of tenants at this point. I mean, you have a loan servicing portfolio as well. I think two million apartments. What are you seeing in terms of people's ability to pay? Is it continuing to be fairly strong? Yeah. So we have a hundred billion dollar loan servicing portfolio. It's segmented between about 85% of that. So 85 billion is multifamily loans and the other 15 billion is on office and retail and hospitality. Uh, on the 85 billion of uh, multifamily loans, we have had very, very few requests for forbearance and those rent rolls have held up exceptionally well. Collections have been north of 95% since the beginning of the pandemic. By the end of the month, rents are coming in slower, but by the end of the month, we're at about 95% percent collections across that portfolio. As you look into the other asset classes, um, in hospitality, you're at about 70% of the loans have asked for forbearance. When you go to retail, about 40% of the loans have asked for forbearance. And when you get down to office, you're in the teens. Industrial is the one other asset class, along with multi, that has held up the strongest this cycle. Uh, Willie, to the point about urban flight, uh, there was a Harris poll, granted just one poll, uh, but did ask people, how likely are you to move out of the city because of the pandemic? And those numbers have uh, have come down. I wonder if you think that that general notion of exiting uh, hyper urban areas was sort of a knee jerk to the to the pandemic earlier in the year. 
You know, Carl, you all have had guest after guest who's been at their summer home on the Hamptons or have been down in their winter home in Florida. Um, those people who have the ability to move around have been moving around. And those people who have the ability to move out of a downtown Manhattan apartment and potentially buy one of those homes in Greenwich that hasn't moved for the last three or four years, there are a lot of people doing that. But that's not middle America. That's not what's going to drive markets. And so the economic reality of people being either in a rental situation or in a home ownership situation, I don't see that changing materially. Um, and if you think about the money that came out of the CARES Act, there's not enough money there to materially influence one's ability to make a down payment to buy a home, which is typically the largest purchase one makes in their entire life. Uh, Willie, always appreciate your taking time with us. Thank you. Thank you, David. Coming up later this morning, uh, Basketball Hall of Famer Isaiah Thomas on the NBA players uh, protesting racial injustice as the league looks to resume the playoffs. As the S&P's up 7, 34-91, we're back after a break. Be sure to tune in tonight for Summer School with Frank Holland. We're taking your questions on high-flying stocks and financial planning. Want to help you with your homework this season? Profit from it tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Much more Squawk on the Street when we return. We're exploring multiple paths. Um, I think we all feel really confident about the future success of TikTok. And, you know, of course, we want to be a responsible company and make sure that we are looking after our employees in any scenario. Uh, but we really do think that we're going to have a positive resolution and uh, hopefully that will come soon. I was, of course, the interim head of TikTok earlier on Squawk Box. They better hope so, uh, Kelly and Carl, because uh, the prospect is that if they don't get this done, and again, the dates are a little hard. They think September 15th, although there was an executive order that followed the September 15th date that might have had the effect of extending it. But regardless, they're going to get shut down if they don't find a buyer. So if you're ByteDance, the owner of TikTok, uh, you want to get as much as you can. You want to have an auction where there's at least two potential buyers so that you can come closer to realizing what the value of this asset may be. But you're faced, on the other hand, with nothing or with the prospect of closing down, suing, and then hoping at some point you can reemerge. 20 to $30 billion, David, that's the figure being floated. Although, again, how, you know, who's, who's determining that value ultimately? Is it up to TikTok to pick who it's selling to? And what, if you're Oracle and you still want this asset, what do you do now? Well, no, it's ByteDance's choice. It's Yi Ming, the man who founded that company. He's only, I think, 36 years old. They, he's going to make the decision as to, along with some of his owners, who are actually some of them part of the Oracle bid, and it gets sort of complex from what I understand in terms of them selling down or out of their ByteDance position and rolling into a TikTok USA position. But he will make the decision. Uh, and again, what's fascinating is, and rarely have we seen anything, if ever, like this, is you're, you're faced with the prospect of your business not existing any longer or selling. So clearly you're going to want to sell, one would think. Uh, but is there a number that's simply too low? Is there a number which is, well, you know what, I'll just take my chances in the hopes that we can come back at some point? I don't think so, but you have, you, know, you have to see, which is why originally I put the range as low as $10 billion to as high as wow. $30 billion, which is something they would certainly hope to get. The asset even in there might be undervalued in some way if this was a more traditional auction with the prospect of it still being an independent company is the other alternative. Yeah, and Carl, again, could be if yeah. it does emerge with Walmart, could be a major turning point for them. 
Uh, and it sort of maybe explains, David, some of the reporting that suggests they're trying to build in some contingencies for an outright ban, if in fact that does happen. Um, fascinating look at uh, not only the thinking behind TikTok, even though we didn't get very many answers from the interim CEO this morning on Squawk, but also the belief within Walmart that there are flywheels uh, within social media for what is obviously a, a retail powerhouse and the largest employer uh, of Americans in this country. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.